like full. Hello? Am I on? Yeah. So good evening. Congratulations for making it through the first day. Often challenging one. I'm wondering if all the excitement that was here yesterday at the idea of doing a 10-day retreat is still the same as it was. <laughs> there was so much brightness and enthusiasm. And then when we drop into silence and begin to face ourselves and our mind and our body and our heart, we get to uh, see that this isn't as easy as we might have thought it was going to be. So again, congratulations for hanging in there. It's a great success that you're still here smiling. It's good to be able to take lightly what the mind is like, all the different wild ways your mind may have taken you today. So we're in the process of settling. And in that settling process, there's a lot of ups and downs. I liked what Anne commented on the yogi this morning who said she could be drinking. Why was, she, why was she here when she could be at a spa sipping wine? Another retreat, a yogi said, I'd rather be at work. <laughs> <laughs> she was having a hard day. <laughs> so it's not easy to... Um, turn the lens from what's generally a very outward-focused orientation in our lives, doing, consuming, producing, functioning, outwardly, to turning the lens back at our own mind, to look very undistractedly. And that's what this environment is. It's an environment of non-distraction. So we can see who we are and what's going on. And not always easy to do that. We say this practice is very simple. Pay attention. Wake up to your breath, to your body. But not easy to stay here. I like to share my, one of my favorite magazine ads, which is a meditation for ultra meditation, where it says, in 28 minutes, you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. It's a five-level ultra-meditation system for transcendence, peak experience, and discovering your place in the universe <laughs> in 28 minutes. I tried it. <laughs> I didn't particularly go anywhere different in the universe than where I was, but it was interesting. So as you can see, it takes a little longer than 28 minutes to be meditating like a Zen monk, however Zen monks meditate, or to find your place in the universe. Actually, it takes only a moment to do that because it's, it's always right here. So today I would like to talk about mindfulness and about mindfulness centered on the body, which really will be a, cent a central uh, orientation of this retreat and really of the whole course. How we bring this quality of attention to our present moment experience and particularly how we learn to inhabit our bodies with this quality of attention, quality of mindfulness. The Buddha said within this fathom long body is found all of the teachings, is found suffering, the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. When the Buddha was practicing and when he attained awakening and developed this system of mindfulness, it was quite radical. It was quite innovative. It was quite exploratory. And yet he actually said that he didn't invent it, that he rediscovered a lost teaching, 
that it's said that when a Buddha appears, they rediscover the teachings of previous awakened ones. And so mindfulness has been taught by all the Buddhas, so it's said. And you may ask the question, why do we practice this? You may have heard or you may know that this quality of wakefulness, of awareness, is inherent to who we are. It's inherent to your true nature. And if that's so, why do we need to practice? Or maybe after today, it's a little more obvious why we need to practice. I heard on the radio some time ago about a man who was uh, traveling with his wife on a road trip, and he pulled into the gas station to get some gas, and his wife went in to buy some food and stuff. He filled up his gas tank, got back in the car and drove on, and about 50 miles down the road, he realized he'd forgotten something, his wife. So we forget, we go to sleep with devastating consequences. <laughs> so what is this quality of mindfulness? In the Pali, it's, the word is sati, which literally means remembering. Mindfulness is a bare attention, a simple attention to the present moment. It's a non-judging, non-interfering attention, non-interfering awareness. It's a quality of knowing. It's the quality that knows, simply knows what's happening in the moment. It's the quality that's knowing that listening is happening right now, that seeing is happening right now, that sitting is happening. It's a fullness of presence. It has depth, it's penetrating. It also has the quality of uh, freshness, of newness, of beginner's mind. This quality of seeing things, meeting things afresh. And what T.S. Eliot wrote in, towards the end of the Four Quartets when he said, we shall never cease from our exploration and at the end of all of our, our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the very first time. That's what this quality of mindfulness does. It, it allows us to see things anew, to see things just as they are, not filtered through the lens of concepts of the past, our ideas, our views. And in this practice, everything is included within the field of mindfulness. Nothing is outside of that. Everything is worthy of our attention, and everything has equal value. The function of mindfulness primarily serves in our path towards freedom. It's a quality that helps liberate us from suffering. So one very simple way it does that, it provides a certain spaciousness so we can see what's happening and disidentify, to not be so lost or caught or held in the grip of something. So an example that came to mind a few retreats ago that I taught was uh, there was a yogi who was particularly plagued by his thinking mind, by his judging mind. And the, the retreat went on for, uh, for, this went on for many days and of course it had been going on for many decades in his life. And one day he was walking down the hill and mindfully present, watching his thoughts and his judgments. And he realized, and there was a certain spaciousness appeared and a certain insight that arose that, oh, they're just thoughts. All these judgments, all these things I've been believing myself, believing about myself, all these negative views and ideas, they're just thoughts. And that may sound very obvious or banal to some of you, but that's very liberating when we see that, when we see, oh, that's just a concept, it's just an idea, it's just a thought. Mindfulness also provides a certain spaciousness to lessen and reduce our reactivity. It's a non-reactive quality of mind. I was teaching, I teach sometimes in San Quentin on a, um, in a program that uh, involves gardening and meditation. And I heard a story 
I think I heard this story there um, about a man who had been practicing mindfulness uh, in that prison. And uh, one particular morning, he had his coffee stolen by uh, a young inmate who'd just come onto the unit. And um, this man was uh, one of sort of the elders in this unit and um, was, in, was incensed that somebody in his, um, amongst his sort of friend, what he called, regarded as his friends, would steal his coffee. Not many perks inside that place. And so when they were out uh, in the yard and he had his spade, he was just about to whack the guy over the head with it. And just before he did, just before he brought the, the shovel down, he had that moment of awareness, a moment of mindfulness of catching his reactivity. And before he took the guy's head off, he put the shovel down. So that's a moment of non-reactive presence, the way mindfulness can intercept those very deep habits of reactivity. So in particular, as I said, the, the emphasis both in our yoga practice, in our meditation practice, and our walking practice is the cultivation of mindfulness turned towards the body, turned towards bodily awareness. And this is what the Buddha had to say about mindfulness of body. He said, there is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. So that's quite a statement. I'm always uh, taken aback when I read that. The mindfulness of body leads to the culmination of wisdom and awakening, leads to vision and knowledge, leads to a happy life here and now. He also said mindfulness of body is a joy. It's a joy to practice it and can be considered one of your best friends because the body is always with us. It's always an ally in this journey. It can be an ally, it can be an enemy, depending on how we relate to it. And in recent years, I've, I've noticed there's more and more attention and awareness in this tradition and maybe other traditions around the importance of the body and the importance of embodiment, of really living, inhabiting, allowing our awakeness, the fullness of our awakeness to manifest in our body, through our body. This is from Pema Chodron. She says, it's helpful to realize that being here, sitting in meditation, doing simple everyday things like working and walking outside, talking with people, eating, using the toilet, is actually all that we need to be fully awake, fully alive, and fully human. It's also helpful to realize that this body that we have, this very body that's sitting here right now in this room, this very body that perhaps aches, and this mind that we have at this very moment, are exactly what we need to be fully human, fully awake, and fully alive. So we have all we need, that's the good news. We may have a few props here and there. I notice a few prop, few more props on this retreat. But ultimately, we have everything that we need within us. So this, this idea of embodiment is um, contrary to this idea of transcendence. There's often talk in spiritual circles of transcending our experience, transcending the body. And this practice is very different. Mindfulness practice is really about inhabiting the body. It's an in-the-body practice, not an out-of-the-body experience. And it's also a very strong uh, counter-message to what I sense and what I see in the culture where most people live very disembodied, where we don't, people aren't comfortable in their skin, not very settled, not very at ease, not very in touch. When I look around, most people seem to live from the eyebrows upwards. I read about a story of a 
from New York radio of uh, a body, a well-dressed body that was on the subway uh, of a man who died during the morning commute. And he, rid- he rode on that train all day before anybody noticed. It was just an indication of how much we are disconnected from bodies and also each other's bodies and the general awareness. So what can we learn about being in the body? I know all of you that are yoga practitioners and yoga teachers, this is one of your primary practices, awakening in the body through asana, through pranayama. So I imagine you know a lot already. You know, from the perspective of this practice, the body is such a wonderful vehicle, is the doorway to the present moment is the doorway to presence. The body is always in the present. The senses are always in the present. So the more, in, the more contactful, the more engaged we are with our physical presence, the more we're here. It sounds very obvious, but we often don't inhabit that. As Philip says, we hang out in the coconut upstairs. We're more familiar, more comfortable there. So mindfulness is a training in this quality of presence. Learning how to be in the present. I want to read a poem from one of my favorite poets, Billy Collins, who speaks about presence in a slightly different way. This is called In the Moment. It was a day in June, all lawn and sky, the kind that gives you no choice but to unbutton your shirt and sit outside in a rough wooden chair. And if a glass of iced tea and a volume of 17th century poetry with a dark blue cover are available, then the picture can hardly be improved. I remember a fly kept landing on my wrist and two black butterflies with white and red wing dots bobbed around in my head in the bright air. I could feel a day offering itself to me and I wanted nothing more than to be in the moment But which moment? Not that one, or this one, or that one, or any of those that were scuttling by seemed quite perfectly right for me. Plus, I was too knotted up with questions about the past and his tall, evasive sister, the future. And more pressingly, what would we serve the vegetarian twins who were coming to dinner that evening? Who knew that they would bring their own grapes? And why was the driver of that pickup flying down the road toward the lone railroad track? And so the priceless moments of the day were squandered one by one, or more likely a thousand at a time, with quandary and pointless interrogation. All I wanted to be was a pea of being inside the green pot of time. But that was not going to happen today, I had to admit to myself. As I closed the book on the face of Trump Thomas Traherne and returned to the house where I lit a flame under a pot full of floating brown eggs, And while they cooked in their bubbles, I stared into a small oval mirror near the sink to see if that crazy glass had anything too special to tell me today. So which moments do we squander? Which moments moments do we decide, oh, those aren't quite good enough. Maybe I'll wait for the few moments down the line. I'll just continue with this train of thought for a while. It's a little more interesting. So there's many, many ways that we can deepen and refine our ability to be in the present through inhabiting our body. And I want to read something from Jacques Le Sourian, who was a French resistance fighter during the Second World War, who was blind um, and had phenomenal capacity uh, to inhabit his senses. Uh, since he lost the, 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 his sight when he was eight, he really... Um, taught himself how to cultivate a very refined mindfulness of the other senses. And I just want to read a little about the the, the sense of touch and just to um, give an example of how we can really learn to inhabit our senses as a way to more fully come into the present. He said, if my fingers press the roundness of an apple, each one with a different weight, very soon I could not tell whether it was the apple or my fingers which were heavy. I didn't even know whether I was touching it or it was touching me. 
As I became part of the apple, the apple became part of me. And that was how I came to understand the existence of things. You cannot keep your hands from loving what they have really felt, moving continually, bearing down and finally detaching themselves. The last, perhaps the most significant motion of all. Little by little, my hands discovered the objects were not rigidly bound within a mold. It was form they first came in contact with, form like a kernel. But around this kernel, objects branched out in all directions. I could not touch the pear tree in the garden just by following the trunk with my fingers. Then the branches, then the leaves, one at a time. That was only a beginning. For in the air between the leaves, the pear tree still continued. And I had to move my hands from branch to branch to feel the currents running between them. So when he goes on to explore all of his other senses in a way that's beautifully refined and just speaks to um, the fact that we have an infinite capacity to deepen our quality of touch, of hearing, of seeing, of sensing. So I want to talk a little about um, the origin of this practice uh, that's so much drawn from the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, which is uh, the sutta on the discourse the Buddha gave on the four foundations of mindfulness. And I want to talk a little about some of the things he had to say about mindfulness of the body and different qualities of mindful attention. So he first spoke of mindfulness as a simple quality of knowing. He talked about cultivating this quality of knowing uh, in two different things. One in the four postures that we mentioned this morning, simply knowing when we're standing, knowing when we're sitting, knowing when we're lying down, knowing when we're walking. So as you stand and sit and walk, cultivating that knowing quality, simply knowing that what's happening when it's happening. The second thing he talked about was being mindful, cultivating this quality of knowing in activities. And he says, the yogi acts clearly knowing when eating, when drinking, when consuming food and tasting. He acts clearly knowing when defecating and urinating. He acts clearly knowing when walking and standing and sitting and falling asleep, waking up and talking and keeping silent. So what's implicit in this teaching is that we're cultivating this knowing in all moments. Even when you go to the bathroom, you sometimes you not go to the bathroom on retreats and go, okay, shut the door. Finally, I can just not be mindful and relax and chill out a little bit. But he's saying, no, when you're defecating and urinating, washing your hands and bathing and eating, every moment is a valid moment for the fullness of mindfulness. Can we maintain that quality of knowing? And these, this quality that we practice, which, which helps develop a sense of continuity, is something that really serves us when we go back into our lives. Because all these activities we do when we go home, we sit and we stand and we move and we walk and we eat and we clean and we shower and we bathe and can we learn how to really deepen into this, these, these simple activities, ordinary activities, with a quality of presence, and not do what we so often do, what the mind likes to do, as, which is to write them off. Oh, well, I'm going to do that when I get to the meditation. You know, but right now, I'm just going to wash my hair and just think about you know, what's going to ha- be happening when I get home. No, it's like every moment we bring that same attentiveness. And so often in that sutta, he talks about mindfulness being established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and attention. So we establish mindfulness to the extent necessary. So we contact, we know what's happening. And one of the things that supports that, that will encourage you to do as you're here, is to slow down. So often in our lives, we're rushing, we're busy, we're toppling forward into what's to come, into the next moment, the next breath, the next, like, next activity. And we, we, we forget how to settle, how to just be here, just to drop into this moment. So right now, as you're sitting, just sensing your quality of knowing, quality of presence. Is there a toppling forward to, oh, well, when this talk's over, I can go to bed. Or I wonder what he's going to say next. 
Just notice what you're in contact with, your body, breath, sounds, mind, thoughts. One of the similes the Buddha gave, which I like a lot, um, is he gives this analogy um, for mindfulness or the benefits of mindfulness practice. He compares it to a man who's walking through the marketplace and he's been told to follow a woman who's dancing and singing and this man has a pot of hot oil on his head and behind him is another man with a sword drawn and if he spills even a drop of oil, he's going to have his head cut off. And so he has to navigate his way through the market while focusing on this woman who's dancing, aware that he's going to get, lose his head if he drops a, uh, loses a drop of oil. We're not going to have any sword-carrying people walking behind you in your walking practice. But we can maybe cultivate that quality of earnestness you know, and, and the Buddha says what allows this person to stay steady is the, is the quality of centeredness and balance which mindfulness provides. It allows us to stay steady in the middle of a difficult situation. Another quality that, the, that this uh, cultivation of mindfulness provides is it's a protection. It's often seen as a protection against negative forces. When we're inhabiting a moment of mindfulness, there's less chance <clears throat> to be pulled by the forces of reactivity, grasping, aversion, resistance, hatred, anger, negativity. I was working recently with a student who's been practicing for some years uh, who has uh, very strong addiction issues. Uh, substance, alcohol, uh, sexual addiction. And um, it's been amazing to watch their journey and to see how mindfulness works with those powerful forces of addiction. We all have our own forms of addiction. Mostly we're addicted to the mind and our thoughts and our judgments and our views and our bodies and... But what I noticed with this person was that they would um, relapse, you know, that the, the forces of neg- negativity would, would overwhelm them and then they would come out and that the mindfulness would sort of pull them out. And what, they, what I found most interesting was over, over a period of time they began to see uh, that even when they were caught in their addiction, that mindfulness began to take root and so, that, so, you know, how that, that pattern happens sometimes when, we, when we're still acting out something, but mindfulness is knowing that we're acting out, but we're still doing it. And eventually that mindfulness allows us to come out of that reactivity. So it was a beautiful thing to watch. It was also painful to see this person relapse, but also very inspiring to see how mindfulness would kind of just, you know, in day eight or day nine of a very intense relapse into addiction, would just suddenly, awareness would flower and they would reflect, oh, right, what am I doing? And then they would release. That's the power of mindfulness. The Buddha also talked about mindfulness as a training. So like today we've been using the breath as a training tool. Pay attention to the breath, Wander off, space out, come back to the breath. Wander off, space out, come back. It's a training. It's an orientation. It's a, it's a um, repetitive practice to help ground us. When I'm doing mindfulness of breathing practice, uh, I like to reflect that the Buddha was doing that practice when he attained full awakening. We sometimes think, oh, mindfulness of breathing, well, I've done that, and now I want to move on to the advanced practices and the tantric practices and whatever esoteric practices out there. But that's what the Buddha was doing, apparently, when he attained enlightenment. 
It's a very profound practice. He said it's a vehicle that can take you all the way to awakening, just like any mindfulness of body practice. So in the days to come, we'll be expanding the field of instructions to include more awareness of the body, to really allow yourself to explore the fullness of body sensation. And as you know, it's not necessarily easy to dwell, to inhabit, to remain steady in the body. And you know this from your asana practice how easy it is to check out, whether it's because we're bored or because the body's in pain or we're restless or we're agitated or there's fear. Good Housekeeping once had an article that reported there were 84 unpleasant sensations in the body possible. I don't know why Good Housekeeping was focusing on 84 unpleasant sensations. But it's a good reason why we don't want to be in the body. The, the tightness and the tension and the aches and the pains and the stiffness and the stabbing and the piercing. and However much we like to inhabit the body, there's also many reasons why we don't dwell there. Difficult emotions, body memories, injuries, pain, physical pain, restlessness, fear, anxiety, all hard, all challenging for us to stay steady and stay settled. And I'm sure you noticed a lot of those today. I know some of you are hanging out in sleepiness. Some of you in agitation couldn't quite sit still in your skin and just wanted to kind of run out of here. Very common ways in the beginning of a retreat that Jack will talk more about tomorrow So there's the mindfulness practice that allows us to simply be present. And there's the, the mindfulness practice that allows us to, to look more deeply, to see, to penetrate more deeply into the truth of our experience. And that naturally begins to happen as we get more present. So what are, the, what are some of the things that we begin to see as we, as we train our attention to be in our body? And again, some of you may have noticed that today as you, as you, even though we were primarily with the breath, we're sitting, we're walking, we're doing asana practice. I'm just curious, what are some of the things you noticed in your body today? You can, you can just say out loud. Any sensations you noticed? Tension. Tension. Piercing. Piercing. Burning. Burning, aching. Numbness. Numbness. Tingling, contraction, contraction. Tiredness. tiredness, pressure. pressure. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> no wonder we check out. <laughs> Tingling, burning, sounds like a torture chamber going on in here. <laughs> so we need patience with ourselves. We definitely need the quality of acceptance of a warm-hearted, embracing attention that, that has space and a softness and a tenderness to hold these difficult experiences. It's so easy for the mind to be judgmental and critical of our experience or ourselves. And what's so needed, especially in these first few days of the retreat, is a very welcoming, invitational soft, warm, inviting spirit to our experience. You know, one of the teachings that we get from being with our body is, you know, which one of the ways that Buddha defines suffering is not getting what we want. And you didn't sign up today for this retreat to experience tingling, burning, stabbing, numbness, aching, contraction, tension. So we get to look, oh, what, what does my mind do with that? How, 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 am, how do I relate to that? Do I check out? Do I go numb? Do I start thinking and fantasizing about something more exciting? Or do I turn to it? Do I get curious? Do I get interested? Do I drop my attention into it and feel it, sense it, meet it? 
know, with so many things in the body, we don't get a choice. We don't get a choice with the body that we got when we were born. Color, shape, size, weight, hair color, suppleness. So we have to practice a lot of equanimity, a lot of meeting, accepting what is, which isn't necessarily easy. And there's so many things that the body can teach us, as I'm sure you're familiar with. The body teaches teaches us about limitations, about our own limits, and that limits aren't necessarily a problem or negative if we meet them with wisdom, with acceptance. This is from Sri Nisargadatta speaking about working with pain, which may speak to some of what you just mentioned today. The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. If it's not acceptable, it's painful. And you will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. I'll read that again. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. And that's so true. When we learn how to to meet and work with pain, physical pain, emotional pain, existential pain, it's those times when we work with that in our lives and our practice that really allow us to deepen, really allow us to let go, really allow us to, to be free. I was once teaching a mindfulness-based stress reduction class at the Kaiser Hospital. I was working with some chronic pain patients. And uh, one particular week, I think it was about week four or five, a woman came in who had been suffering from chronic neck pain uh, for about 10 years. And these are mostly people who the medical system had given up on because none of the, the treatments had worked. So they sent them to us to uh, heal them through meditation. Anyhow, so this woman came in very excited one day uh, in week four, week five, and she said, I, I'm, I'm really excited about my neck pain. I said, yeah, what's going on? She said, well, you know, I got really quiet in the meditation and really calm and relaxed, and I was able to take my attention really to the heart of my neck pain. And I said, yeah, and I said, what did you notice? And she said, well, it wasn't that bad. She said, you know, I've been so afraid of it and so contracted and tight and all my muscles around it had been so locked for so long but when I was able to relax those and actually get to the heart of the experience, it actually wasn't that bad. But over the 10 years, it become this monolithic monster. And then she said, I also noticed it wasn't there all the time. It came and went. The stabbing and piercing came and went, and there was space. And that was hugely liberating for her, as you can imagine. So when physical pain comes up, when emotional pain comes up, as it, as it has done today, as it will do in the days to come, no doubt, it will come and go. The invitation, as I said earlier, is to see if you can meet it with a kind, tender awareness. See if you can meet it with a compassionate heart. And when we're in physical pain or in mental pain, emotional pain, we're suffering. And the appropriate response to suffering with an open heart is compassion, is to meet that pain with tenderness. And that first often involves to recognize, oh, this is suffering. This is painful. My knee pain, my back pain, my neck ache, the stabbing. Oh, yeah, this is suffering. This is painful. May I be free of suffering. So we extend that heart of compassion. And so often just shifting the orientation from one of aversion and contraction resistance to, oh, let me see if I can just be with this, soften with this. It often allows the whole constellation to dissolve, or at least be more easeful. So notice in the days here what your relationship is to your body. How do you relate to it? Do you relate to it as a friend 
Or do you relate to it as an adversary when it doesn't do what you want it to do, when you can't quite get to the stretch that you're used to getting to? Or the suppleness? Or the pain-freeness? Do you relate to it like a servant, like you expect it or demand it to do exactly what you want it to do? Do you take it for granted? Do you respect its limitations when the body says, oh, that's enough. Today, I'm not going to go as deep into that pose. Do we say, no, I really want to actually go beyond what I did yesterday. Do we, do we respect the body's limits? Even the Buddha realized after his ascetic period that we need to treat the body well, that we can't do this journey, this practice with that life-denying, self-mortifying orientation. It doesn't work. The Buddha said, our body is precious. It's a vehicle for awakening. Treat it with care. So how would it be to really hold your body and everything that arises within it with a spirit of kindness, with affection? So when we look at the body, we see the painfulness sometimes. At other times, we see the changing nature. One of the things that we orient in this practice is to see the changing nature of phenomena, of experience, of everything that arises in the mind-body, in the sphere of this world, is forever changing. And we know that intellectually, but as the, this practice is so much about a direct experiential understanding. So we pay attention. We see how the breath comes and goes, sensation comes and goes, pain comes and goes, thoughts, feelings, emotions, moods, forever coming and going like a waterfall. Nothing very solid to hold onto. Nothing lasts long enough to hold onto. Seeing and understanding change allows us to let go a little allows us not to be so caught. You know, one of the paradoxes about working with the body in this practice is we're both learning how to respect and meet and understand the body, hold it with care, compassion, but we're also, also seeing its nature, seeing its selfless nature. We're learning how to not be so identified, so attached, so um, self-grasping towards the body. This is from Achan Chao. He says, we only rent this house, talking about the body. If it belonged to us, we could tell it not to get sick, not to grow old. But it takes no notice of these wishes. With wisdom, if you live, that's good. And when you have to die, that's fine too. If the doctors told me I had cancer and was going to die in a few months, I'd remind the doctors, watch out, because death is coming to get you too. It's just a question of who goes first. Another, another thing that we can, that, that, and this is something that I've, it's been happening for me a lot in the last few years, when I turn my attention towards the body, um, more what I'm attuned to these days is the mystery, the wonder, the complexity the uh, self-organizing, self-healing, self-generating properties of the body that's happening all by itself. And you put your hand on your heart and it's just beating. It knows where to send blood to the 5,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. It doesn't have to consult with us. Now, where shall I send this one right now? Down to your left knee or right knee? No, it's just happening. The breath, the breath is coming and going effortlessly, selflessly. You're listening to these words. It's happening effortlessly. You don't have to make an effort to hear. The brain with all its synapses and neurons and 11 trillion synapses firing, maybe they're not firing that many quite right now, but <laughs> maybe over the few days it'll pick up speed a little. Maybe it feels like 11 are firing right now. Or our skin, we, we grow this biggest organ of our body. Every month it completely regenerates. And all the dust you see in the air, 70% of that is our skin. Just in case you're wondering why we get such, such, such a lot of dust in our houses, that was you <laughs> last month <laughs> and the month before. 
is that we're not so identified with that part of us anymore. <laughs> so it's really, it's really instructive to pay attention to the selfless quality of the body, the processes that go on. And when we're walking, the body's walking, stepping, moving, lifting, muscles moving, bones moving, skeleton moving, happening very effortlessly and selflessly. We don't have to think about it. When we eat and we digest, we don't have to decide how to do that. It's just happening. The body takes care of itself. Thoughts appear and disappear endlessly. Again, selflessly. We didn't ask a particular thought to come into being. We didn't ask it to go away. It just is happening by itself. We can just settle back, settle in awareness, and watch this whole amazing display, this sideshow of phenomena, of what we call me or my or self, appearing and disappearing. Is it really who you are? Is it really right to claim identity on all of it? Or is it just happening organically? Time Magazine once did a study on trying to find the origin or the source of the mind, of the thinker, of the doer, of the decider, and it couldn't find it. This was Time Magazine. You'd think a revolution would happen, but no, it just, life went on. Where am I? (laughs) Who am I? And as we pay attention to our body in these 10 days, Notice how much identity comes from your body, from how your body looks, the appearance, the attractiveness. Notice what happens when you're having a bad hair day or when you get a bad haircut. Notice you know, when you're doing your asana, how much identity comes from your body, from the shape, from the appearance, how much self-grasping And notice what it's like when we're grasping, when we're holding very tightly to the the body is who I am. Is that an expansive, open, free place? Or is it contracted? Is it tight? Is Is it fearful? When we're sitting, what's the relationship to identification? Am I going to be sitting the most still yogi in the room, the best posture? And how do we how do we identify? with our body when we sit or when we walk. Are we doing the slowest walking, the coolest walking? A friend of ours was doing a retreat. Actually, I was on the same retreat at IMS. It was a three-month course, and he was doing this super slow walking, feeling very mindful and proud of himself. And this one particular yogi who was very loud and rambunctious whenever he moved and always making a lot of noise and walking really fast and and our friend said, as, as, he, as this noisy yogi walked by, he said, well, at least I don't have as much self as he does. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to leave you with this koan of um, this inquiry of paying attention to our body, having the this body is the temple, is the vehicle for our practice, the container for our mindfulness. And at the same time, to have an open curiosity about the way that we identify, the way that we take this body to be who I am, to be self. The way when a sensation of pain arises in the knee, we don't just notice, oh, sensation, just as we'd notice a sound, we go, oh, my knee, oh my God, no, what about my knee? This is going to be my old injury. I hope it wouldn't come back, but it did. And oh no, I'm going to go see my chiropractor and this retreat's over. And oh, right, tingling, tingling, burning, burning, sensation, sensation. Notice how the I thought claims our experience. Oh, my thought, my belly, my food, my yoga mat, my breath, versus just breath, sound things coming and going. In truth, everything is magically appearing and disappearing within the field of your awareness. It's all a magical display. We sit back and we watch the whole show appear and disappear every moment, a new display. The Buddha said, were the the body self, the body would not suffer affliction. 
And one could have a body what one wished, saying, let my body be this way or that way, and it would do it. But no, it doesn't. The body has a life of its own. We don't control it. We don't own it. But we, we're here to take care of it and to learn to inhabit it. And to settle into this mystery of inhabiting this body and yet knowing that who we are is beyond the body, is much more mysterious and un, undefinable uncontainable through concepts, through words, through limits. As soon as we define who we are, we put a limit in a box on, on ourselves. So let's uh, sit for a few moments. Noticing the quality of the body this moment. Noticing your relationship to whatever arises in the field of your body. And I'll leave you with this one quote from Achan Mun, who says, In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature, see the elements that compose it, see the impermanent, the impermanence, the suffering, the selfless nature of the body, while standing and sitting and walking or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. Thank you for your attention. We now have some time for walking and we'll come back at nine o'clock for some sitting and uh, some chanting. Thank you. <laughs> 